Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 6. We'll look at verses 15 through 21 this morning. They're printed in the bulletin for you on the next page. So just like last week, uh, we looked um, last week, the beginning of chapter 6 is uh, the record of the account of Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fishes, and um, it's the sign of the loaves and fishes. So just like last week with that that sign of the multiplication of the loaves, there's more going on here than meets the eye. We have to learn to see what's going on here. The sign of Jesus walking on the sea um, is just that. It's a sign. It's an event that points to something deeper, uh, something more profound than what a uh, camera and a microphone could capture. Uh, Jesus walking on the sea, coming, coming to his disciples like this, it means something. It's easy to come away with ideas like, you know, just Jesus can manipulate the forces of nature, therefore Jesus must be God, big deal, you know, big deal. Uh, Or Jesus is an impressive, fearsome person, you shouldn't mess with him. Or Jesus is the great rescuer of his people and nothing can stop him. It goes deeper than even that. It goes deeper than that. Again, John sees... um, Some big strands of biblical thought being tied together here in the life of Jesus Christ, but in this episode, in this account, this event. um, In John's gospel, this account seems completely like an unrelated interruption uh, between the sign of the loaves and the bread of life discourse or the sermon that Jesus gives about the sign of the loaves. You've got the the sign and uh, Jesus talking about that sign but it's interrupted by this, and it seems like a completely unrelated interruption. Wouldn't it for, flow more smoothly just to move directly from the sign to the sermon? Why plunk this seemingly disconnected story here? There is a connection. We should assume that there is a connection and, and look to discover what it is. We have to see the connection in order to properly understand this event, this sign of his walking on the sea. Uh, it's an event that three of the gospel writers have recorded as immediately following the sign of the loaves. Jesus takes the bread and multiplies it and gives it, and uh, thousands of people eat, and there's 12 baskets taken, taken up, and then the very next thing, three of the gospel writers record, is uh, this, this event, this, this sign of uh, Jesus walking on the sea. Mark, when he records this, when, when he records the disciples' response, their reaction to Jesus walking on the sea, he makes this, the connection specific. And he says, they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So there's a connection here. What's the connection? What's the connection that the disciples were supposed to see, didn't see, came to see as they wrote the scriptures later, uh, made made it clear that they did see the connection between these two signs, the sign of the loaves and the sign of the sea? How would it help to understand about the loaves? How would it help to have a softened heart and an understanding about the sign of the loaves when the disciples were at sea? How would that have helped? What what does the sign of Jesus walking on the sea mean? What does that mean? It means something. What does it mean? That's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray that you would um, calm our hearts and give our minds clarity as we sit under your word as we receive from you what it is uh, you would communicate to us. Please speak to us here through Jesus Christ and through your scripture, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, growing up, um, I would say I'm ashamed to admit this, but I don't think I am. Uh, I watched a lot of B-rate 80s action movies, like the kind that are on Saturday mornings and your dad falls asleep to, but, you know, the kids are just like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever, right? (laughs) B-rate 80s action movies. Anybody remember uh, Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins? I know Joe does. Remo Williams. Uh, This tough New York City street cop trains with basically the mystical martial arts master, this ancient Asian guy, uh, who uh, teaches him to dodge bullets and run on water, which is pretty handy when you've got to get away from the bad guys, right? And I always thought it would be really cool if I could do that, and I actually tried to imagine myself running on water. I thought, that was the coolest thing ever. I wasn't quite sure the difference between fictional movies and uh, reality at the point, but uh, you could almost imagine it. If you could get your feet moving fast enough, right? could run on water, maybe. Actually, there's a lizard. (laughs) Kids know this. There's a lizard, the basilisk, that uh, is so lightweight and runs in just such a way, I think it kind of uses its big feet as paddles as it's skipping across the water. It can actually run across the surface of the water, which has earned it the official nickname, the Jesus Christ Lizard. (laughs) That's what it's called. (laughs) Wildcrats. So, (laughs) it's a good show. Good show for the kids. Is that it? Is that it? I mean, did Jesus, he learned the advanced mystical techniques of the cosmos that allowed him mastery over the elements so they could do such such a thing as walk on the water? Did he manipulate the laws of physics to walk on the stormy sea? You've got to imagine he's he's got to manipulate a lot of laws, gravity, uh, kind of the first of them, right, Uh, to walk on a stormy sea. Or or could he just run fast enough relative to his body weight? Uh, Or... Is this the point of the event that we should be impressed that he's able to do this? Is that the whole point of the event? Is there really just this very narrow application that if you happen to be one of his disciples in a boat, in a stormy sea, don't worry about it. He'll, he'll come to you walking on the water. Is that the application we're supposed to walk away with? Not really. Here's the thing. It's not just that Jesus can do impossible stuff like walk on water. In fact, John doesn't say Jesus walked on water, quote, um, but on the sea. And, of course, the sea is made up of water, so it means Jesus walking on the sea means that he was walking on the water. But if you pay attention to the language John is using, pay attention to the language, the very specific words John is using, because for John, language is important. In fact, throughout the scriptures, you should pay attention to the words 
pay close attention. The word sea is used four times. The, water, the, the word water is used zero times. So he's walking on the sea. It's a purposeful use of specific language. And I said last week that often in the scriptures, the sea, like the ocean, the sea is uh, a symbolic image of the nations. It's a symbolic image of the nations, all the peoples, usually in their chaotic enmity against God, their, their uprising, their tumult, right? their raging enmity with God. So the, the sea that uh, they're on now is the Sea of Tiberias, the sea not just of the Gentiles, but of the, the pagan, worldly government of the Roman Empire, right? not just Gentiles in general, but the forces of the world arrayed against God and against his Christ and against his people. That's, that's where they are, symbolically at least. They're, uh, they're on this sea, and there's one who walks upon the sea, who walks upon this sea, who treads securely above the waves of the raging nations. That's the picture we get here. It says in Psalm 65, uh, I think I put this on the front page of the bulletin, one of the quotes there for you. By awesome deeds, you, God, answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. There's parallel poetry there. The roaring and raging of the waves and the, the chaos of the peoples, the nations. These things are in parallel here so that uh, those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. Um, in John's uh, revelation, John wrote the gospel that we're going through now. Um, and he wrote Revelation, which comes at the end of the scriptures. In, uh, in chapter 13, he writes of the beast rising out of the sea. And he's talking about the tyrants of the kingdoms of this world who threaten God's people, like historically Pharaoh in Egypt threatening God's people Israel, or, or now Caesar in Rome threatening God's people. He says in Revelation 20 that the sea gave up the dead who were in it unto judgment. That's not a picture of people who were buried at sea, people lost at the bottom of the ocean. Those are the ones that come back for resurrection. The sea is the, the peoples of the world, and all the sea is giving up their dead to the, uh, the resurrection to judgment. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That doesn't mean there's no more large bodies of water in the world. It means the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is descending from heaven to earth and bringing peace with it. So there, there are no more raging, tumultuous nations anymore. Revelation 4, he has this, John has a vision that before the throne of God, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. A sea of glass, like crystal, the peoples of the earth brought to tranquility and pacified in God's presence. John is called John the Seer because he sees in the events of Christ's life these kinds of cosmic truths. He sees when Jesus walks on the water, he sees the connections that God would have him make. 
these cosmic connections. And when he considers the sign of Jesus walking on the sea, he understands it to be a picture of Jesus' supremacy over the nations, over all the nations, over all the peoples who rage against God in their enmity against God, even over tyrannical governments that threaten God's people in their mission, not just in their daily life, not just in the circumstances of their lives, but in their mission. After the sign of the loaves, the people wanted to make Jesus king by force. Misunderstanding what kind of king he is, Jesus doesn't have the same kind of authority, the same kind of kingship as the rulers of this world, that he would just take over Caesar's job. That kind of kingship is much too small. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And the whole world will be pacified under his authority. His kingdom will spread from shore to shore. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But that doesn't look at all like Caesar's army bringing Pax Romana to the barbarian nations. It's not what that looks like. In fact, it will mean Jesus' own sacrifice before it means his victory. That's what his victory looks like. That's what his kingdom looks like. Jesus has granted his life. This is where you see the connection with what goes before, the sign of the loaves. Jesus has granted his life, his relationship with the Father. He is the perfect son who enjoys relationship with the Father forever. And he has granted that to be our life. And this is blessing upon blessing beyond blessing. But it comes in the most difficult way because it would appear that Jesus got trampled under the Roman machine, that he sunk in waves over his head politically and socially and in every way, that that the waves overtook him. But ultimately we see his authority expressed in his sacrifice, not in spite of his sacrifice, not in spite of his death. But in it, in his very sacrifice, which is our bread, it's our life with God, it's the life of the whole world. And this, this will mean, because we have a Savior and a King like this, this will mean his disciples' sacrifice too. As he has commanded us to carry this bread, the bread of Christ, to this world, to our neighbor's, We're not just here to live the victorious life now. In so many ways, we continue under the threats of the world, the threat of death. Apparently in over our heads and at the mercy of the waves of the nations as we carry around the life and death of our king with us. When Christ's people go out among the nations, when we go out among the nations, things get rough quick, like the disciples in the boat at sea struggling against wind and waves. Eventually, almost uh, every single one of these guys, the disciples, the original disciples, almost every single one were swallowed up by the angry sea, by the, by the peoples and the political forces of the world, and they died violent deaths, some by beheading, some by crucifixion. And those things are hardly imaginable to us. But historically and globally, it's been the norm rather than the exception. That, that God's people would face this kind of chaos in the world. 
The ancient church used several symbols to represent certain truths of the gospel. One of them was a boat, like you have at the, the back of the bulletin there. I stuck a little boat on there. Um, it's the imagery of the church tossed at sea in the world of unbelief, in a world of persecution, and it's a great image for the church. This, this image of this boat at sea is a great image for the church at mission in the world as we carry the life of Christ, the, the sacrificial death of Christ, the love of Christ, as we carry this, not just on our lips, but in our lives. It feels like we're lost at sea. We're tempted, at least, tempted to fear, tempted to insecurity and doubt and confusion while we're on our mission. With the literal sea, you don't have to get very far out into the waves before you feel entirely helpless. There could be a deep fear, that deep sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. You don't have to get very far out, just a little bit beyond the waves before you feel utterly helpless. Imagine the darkness of I mean, this, this setting gives us a picture. The darkness of night on the sea, the storm, the apparent absence of Jesus. Wondering if, even if he were present, if he could do anything. The whole thing would have been terrifying, including seeing Jesus coming toward them on the sea. This is just baffling. Uh, living in the world can easily be frightening and overwhelming for us. It's hard to be a friend to sinners, isn't it? It's hard to be a friend. It's not safe. We think friendships in the church may be, may be a little bit safer. We can presume that they're a little safer. Being a friend to sinners, that's not safe. It's really hard to be a friend to your enemies, to care for them with the love of Christ, especially when those enemies wield worldly power. Sometimes the world is openly against us as God's people, uh, officially pursuing our lives like Egypt chasing Israel to the Red Sea. Psalm 89 says to God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab. And this, um, this is an image that shows up a few times in the Old Testament. Rahab is, uh, is like a mythical sea beast that symbolizes Egypt, the power, the worldly power of Egypt. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. Sometimes you'd like to withdraw from the world. Wouldn't that be easier? Circle the wagons and live in a fortress together as Christians in our families. Sometimes you'd like to withdraw from the world like Israel wished they could get out of Babylonian captivity. They just wanted out. But God calls you to engage and live in the world for the good of your neighbors even though they might be the very ones who are a threat to your life. For their good, to engage and live with them. Sometimes the nations rage, like, like we read in our uh, Old Testament reading, Psalm 46, the nations rage and the kingdoms totter, 
And God's voice comes to all the peoples saying, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. That's a promise. And here Jesus is calling across the sea, It is I. And that language uh, in the original language is, I am. He's adopting the divine self-disclosure The way God reveals himself to his people, he says, I am. Do not be afraid. I am. Do not be afraid. Reassuring you using that divine self-designation, I am. Sometimes you feel like your identity, your identity is threatened by the world. And here comes Jesus to you striding above the waves. And his he has this absolute identity as the son of God. And he shares that identity with you. He shares that peace with you in everything in a way that cannot be touched by anything in this world. Sometimes you feel like the unholiness of the world is contagious. If you spend too much time in these circles or with these friends or watching these shows, it's contagious. It's going to rub off on you that everywhere you turn, you're getting wet and splashed. Um, And here comes Jesus, whose holiness is not contaminated by the world. Everywhere he went, it was unholiness all around him. He's the only holy person who's ever lived. But his holiness wasn't contaminated. In fact, his holiness spreads and cleans everything else. Just as his presence here calms the wind and the waves. Sometimes you feel like you're rowing upstream and into the headwind, fighting a losing battle against the world, against its temptations. And here comes Jesus who is sure to get you to your ultimate destination. It's easy to be afraid of the world, afraid of the culture, afraid of the world's influences beyond our control, afraid of unbelievers, afraid of persecution, afraid of doing evangelism, afraid of opening your mouth and and sharing the life of Christ with people who need to hear it, afraid of mission, like being lost at sea during a storm where everything's too big for you, where things stopped being manageable a long time ago. But Jesus comes to you. He comes to you, bringing you life with God that no one can take away from you, even if they take your head. Because they can't stop Jesus from coming to you. All the raging nations cannot stop his purpose. Even if they do appear for a little while as unconquerable as the sea, uncontainable, unmanageable. Jesus Jesus will come to you to be with you in this wild world, and he will bring you with him where he is. And you know this. You know this because you know who he is. Knowledge of him takes away your fears and makes you glad. Knowledge of him. Ask you a question. Which weighs more? All the turbulent circumstances of this world and this life? Or the identity of Jesus Christ? Which weighs more? He is God. He is the life of the world. He is Lord over all. He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's God for us. And that will be the ultimate truth for his disciples, even if they're being swallowed up by the angry sea 
and all the nations are raging against us because Jesus is who he is. Eventually, he will swallow up the angry sea. He will subdue the nations and make them like a sea of crystal glass. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, it's as good as done. So let me read Psalm 47, verses 1 through 3. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy for the Lord. The Most High is to be feared a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. That's what happens when your Lord can walk on the sea. So, brothers and sisters, do not be afraid. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I have fear every time I'm about to open my mouth and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone. And so I imagine that um, all my friends, brothers and sisters in this room would feel the same way. We pray that you would assuage our fears that you would fix our eyes on Christ, that you would give us uh, the assurance that he is the Lord, he knows what he's doing, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and that therefore we are to go into the world and make disciples in his name, and that um, even if we meet with evil circumstances and our lives are brought up abruptly, that you are the Lord, that your plans will not be thwarted, your purposes will never fail, no one can stop you from being with us and for us and bringing us to our ultimate destination, which is where you are to live with you forever. We pray that you would give us the full assurance of this in our hearts as we look to Christ by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.